Why don't you all stand with me um, as we read God's word? Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. And it reads like this. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, And Father, today especially we thank you for your church, Lord. It is your church uh, that has proven to be a safeguard for your word, Father. Uh, We're grateful that us being involved or plugged into a community is one of the ways that you have ensured that we aren't deceived by the lies of the evil one, Father. Would you help us to rejoice in the gift that you've provided for us as we spend time in your word today. We ask that you would speak, we would listen and obey, and we would experience the blessings that come from hearing you and heeding your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you take your seat? Greek mythology tells a story of a war. Uh, It was the Trojan War, and the way that this story goes is this, is that the Greeks uh, spent 10 years fighting against Troy. And what they found is in this 10-year war, they couldn't break past this impenetrable wall. So the Trojans that lived inside this wall one day woke up, And they saw all the Greeks getting into boats, and they sailed away. At their front gate, they see this big wooden horse. So the Trojans assumed that after this intense 10-year battle, that they beat their foes, sent them running, and that their foes were so um, uh, in awe of the way that they were beat that they left them this gift. That night, the... Trojans wheeled that gift, that horse, into their house, and they went to sleep. What they didn't know was that inside of the Trojan horse uh, were these elite Greek soldiers. And so what they do is, after everybody goes to bed, the Trojans take their contacts out, they got their glasses on, they're binge-watching Game of Thrones on their Netflix, people are calm and chill, and and the Greeks come out, unlock the front gate, and it turns out that the Greeks really didn't go home. They just waited in the cut and came back around, and they come in, and the city that had these impenetrable walls lay in ruins. The big mistake that the Trojans make, um, I think it's the same mistake that the church makes. And the mistake that they made was they made the assumption that the only place they had to fear the work of their opponent was in enemy territory. They thought since their walls were impenetrable and since they were victorious, they thought that they could let their guards down at home and as they let their guards down at home, it it proved to be their 
disaster, their demise. Um, I say this because I think this is where we are in the book of Revelation. This is what this letter is all about. It is about this church that is much like ours in the world that we live in. You and I live in a world that is very hostile, not just to God, but to Christianity. We live in a world that is very hostile to the flourishing of humanity. And there's tons of stuff for us to fight for outside of the walls of this church. There's tons of racial injustice for us to protest and fight against. There's tons of socioeconomic inequality. There is tons of abuse and slander and lies and all types of stuff outside of these walls. And let me tell you, as Christians, as people that live here in this world to do good in this world, we should fight all of those things. But just because we have an enemy outside of these walls, it doesn't mean that he's not at work inside of these walls. And if we let our guard down here, it'll prove to be our ruin. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through this text really quick. There's parts of it that are confusing, so I'll do my best to try to explain it. We'll get to the point of it, and then we'll go right to how we apply this in the life of our church. I want you to know that the Trojan War is a fictional story, but the danger that it brings up is as real as the chair that you are sitting in. Revelation chapter 2, we find ourselves at the church in Pergamum. For those of you that have not been here in the course of the past few weeks, let me just catch you up to where we are. Revelation is a book written to seven Asian churches that are struggling in the world. Um, we get confused and intimidated by the book because we read this book and what we think of is the Left Behind series. We think of timelines and dragons and creatures and all this stuff. And, and, and us getting so lost in all that, we miss out the, on the point of the book. And the point of the book is very, very clear. There is conflict in the world that we live in, but Jesus wins at the end. So, To be on the right side of history, we want to be on his side. And so he's writing to this church. He's writing to these churches in order to commend them, to give them courage to move on in their journey, but also to critique them. And we talked about this the first week. Uh, The person that best critiques the church is the person whose commitment to the church has been the most unwavering. And that is Jesus. He died to birth this church. So as he comes, he's not going to act like things are all good with the church. He's going to praise what he can, but he's also going to critique them. Ephesus is the first one that he goes to. And what he finds is a church that thrives on truth, but they're shallow when it comes to love. And the point that he makes to them is, hey, y'all are killing it in the truth game. Y'all are killing it in your work, but I want you to know Christian labor is no substitute for Christian love. We are people of love. And then he goes to this this next group, the church out in Smyrna. And he doesn't have any words of critique for them. He praises them for what they do, but he says persecution is getting ready to come And I want you to know, here's the way that you endure suffering and hard times in this life. Here's the way that you conquer that fear of death that we all have. That as we focus on the promise that he's made to us for eternal life, what that does, what that focus on the future does, is it makes you and I faithful until death instead of fearful of death. And then he gets to this church in Pergamum. And what you find is this is kind of a combination of those first two. So this is a church where doctrinal falsehood is right there in the mix. There's people that come in with lies and persecution is not about to come. Persecution is coming. It's right there at the front doorsteps. And look what he starts off in verse 12. In verse 12 he says this, right to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but in each of these letters, Christ comes in 
and he reintroduces an aspect of who he is that's pertinent to the people that find themselves in a problem. So what you get is a persecuted church, things that are hard, and we're going to go on to how hard they are. Uh, Look here at verse 13 real quick. He says this, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. Pergamum was a city uh, that was in favor with Rome. They were the poster boys for Rome. Pergamum had the power of the sword to put people to death if they didn't fall in line with what took place in Rome. When he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, Pergamum was the first city to build a temple to worship a living Roman emperor. So, the whole world that we live in is Satan's playgrounds of sorts, but what he's saying is this is home base. Things are so bad here that he brings up this guy, Antipas. Historians say this was a guy that was a Christian leader who was taken and roasted alive in a brazen bull to show what they would do to Christians. And Christ comes and he looks and and he praises this church. It's a tough church. But what he does is he starts off and he says this, look, thus says the one who holds the double-edged sword. The picture that he gives is of a Jesus, of a God that is a warrior. What this is not, this is not a picture of the little guy in the frame that looks like Kenny G with a dress on, sitting in a field of lilies, caressing sheep, and smizing off into the distance. If that's the picture that you have of Jesus in your head, what he's saying is that is not him. And that's not what you want. If you're going through hard times, and you hear that God is your father as much as we love Uncle Phil and Carl Winslow, you don't want a dad like that. If you're in the midst of these hard times, do you know what you do you know who you want to be your dad? Somebody like Liam Neeson and Taken. Where you know that if things really get bad, he's gonna come in. Look, this letter starts off with Jesus saying to everybody, to a church that finds themselves frustrated at the end of the road, enduring all of these hard times, that he knows where you live. Just because you're in this hard time that you're in right now, it does not mean that you have been abandoned by God. It does not mean that he's apathetic to your cause. Jesus starts off and says, I know where you live. And the first thing that he does to this church is he praises them for their toughness. Even in the midst of seeing somebody that they knew roasted alive. Those smells don't leave your memory quickly. Even when they've seen that, they haven't let go of Jesus. Their commitment to him has been unwavering and what he's saying is is that is a very, very good thing. And as I sit and as I think about our young church that'll be three years old here in a few months, I couldn't help but to read this this past week and to praise God uh, for the tenacity and the tough people that he's blessed us with. I want y'all to know, Cornerstone, I want y'all to hear this. We have a very tough church when it comes to holding on to the commitment that we have in the Lord. I've personally seen folks hold on to the Lord when they've been abandoned by their spouses. I've seen folks hold on to the Lord when they've experienced death of family members. I've seen folks give their life, folks that are a part of this church, give their life outwardly to end sex trafficking in Atlanta and beyond. 
This church started with a group of folks who could have lived anywhere in the city of Atlanta but chose to move into the West End before the breweries and the Beltline came. And now this same group of folks that are literally sitting on an investment that if you hold it for the next five years would make you filthy rich have let that go to move into English Avenue. There's folks that are a part of the church. I think of folks like Wes who, instead of climbing this ladder of education with the experience and all the stuff that he has, all that he could have climbed, chose to go and be a dean at an elementary school in English Avenue to impact those young kids. The LBs and caresses and uh, Lenny's and all the folks that spend their time at English Avenue sitting on these boards, that it, it's this group of folks that really do believe that we have a promise in eternal life. So if we have to go to a very, very hard place and it may cost us our lives if things go really, really bad, that's fine. And in the midst of all of this opposition, This tough church, like our tough church, hasn't let go of the commitment that we have to the Lord. And that's that's worthy of being praised. It's worthy of being commended. And Jesus is going to do that. But you look at verse 14 and it starts off with that one word. But. One of the most important words in your Bible. But. Sets a contrast. This is a tough church that can withstand the tornadoes of affliction. The house doesn't cave. But, but what? Let's read here. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Or you, or you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's he trying to say here? What's the critique that he has against this tough church that has withstood death threats? the thing that he warns them of is compromise. And so what he says here is that even the toughest church can be ruined by the tiniest compromise. The toughest church can be ruined by the tiniest compromise. If you have a house that is tornado-proof, It doesn't matter if it's termite infested. It doesn't matter if your house can withstand all types of storms. If there's things that will come inside and rot the very foundation. And here's what I mean. Here's why he's calling out a little compromise. Look here. He he goes on and he, he doesn't say that the whole church has bought into all of this. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Look at this. You have some there who hold to the teaching. This is not an infestation. What he's saying, Yo, there's some there that hold this. There's some there that hold that. Look, heap compromise is so deceptive because the amount of it never alerts us. We think that just because it's small, it's not a big deal. So we think that just because a few folks have this, it's not really a big deal. But I want you to know, when we talk about compromising the truth of God, the amount is not the thing that's most important. What's most important when it comes to compromise is, is it present or is it absent? Bluebell, a few years ago, uh, right? What they found out was that in their ice cream, they had uh, this, this thing called listeria. 
Um, They found it out because Listeria killed folks. So do you know what they did? They're like, we don't know how much of it has gotten out. Our mission and our aim is to do good to the outside world. But until we've got this thing solved, we're actually going to shut down the factory and not export anything. Because in all this goodness that we're exporting, we're really exporting death if we don't take care of this little thing here. So what he starts off here is he says, look, look, even though it's some of you, it's a big enough deal for me to talk to everybody. And so what that does is it removes the misnomer from you and I that things that go on in the life of the church is just my business. It is not your business. It's all of our business, and that's God's safeguard safeguard for us. What exactly is he trying to address here? I know that we read... uh, you hold to the teaching of Balaam, and we don't really uh, know what that means. Uh, so here's, uh, uh, we talked about this the first week. The best way to interpret the Bible is to use what? The Bible, right? So uh, in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24, we come across this guy, Balak. He's an enemy of the people of Israel. And so what he does is he pulls this guy, Balaam, And says, hey, I want you to curse Israel. Rain down these curses. And if you do it, I'll pay you. So what this guy does four times is he goes and speaks. God hijacks his words. And instead of cursing them, what he does is he pronounces this blessing. And this guy leaves because he finds out, man, there's no way that I can curse them. I'm trying to curse them and bring down this tornado of affliction on God's people. But I can't. And then in chapter 25 we see something interesting that takes place. Chapters 22 to 24 you see this group of folks that seems like they're curse proof. And then 25 verse 1 it starts with them just being near a group of Moabites. Than them starting to eat with this group. And before long, they find themselves in full-fledged idolatry and immorality with this group. Chapter 31 of the same group, uh, or book, helps us see that here's what Balaam did. He advised Balak that if you can't curse them from up top, the best way to ruin them is to corrupt them and lead them into compromise. God says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We have a church, we have a group of folks that is curse-proof, tornado-proof. But what we quickly find out is that Satan seldom retreats. That if it seems like Satan is starting to back off from the outside, it's not because he's retreated. It's only because he's regrouped and tried to find a different strategy to undermine God's church. The activity that they find themselves in, what he brings up here is meat, sacrifice to idols. And I know this is a lot of context, but stick with me. What they would do in this day and age is they would sacrifice their meat to to their gods as this tribute. It was a part of their worship. And if you didn't eat this meat right alongside of them, then you were cast out. You couldn't be a part of of the trade guilds and, and all that. So what this church would say or what folks would do, the temptation for Christians would be like, well, we know that we're free to eat this meat because Paul says that there's no such thing as a God. This is a matter of conscience and Christian freedom. It's not necessarily sin. And so what they would do is they would blur the line of distinction in between the church and the world. They do all that they could to not necessarily sin and try to fit in with the surrounding culture. And before long, what they found was that it's easier for somebody to pull you down than it is for you to pull them up. And just a little compromise was enough to corrupt this 
entire church. Not just in idolatry, but in their sexual ethic of their day. So Balaam really becomes a prototype of any corrupt leader who convinced believers to blur the line in between God's people and the world in order to fit in. Here's what that looks like in our day and age right now. Real time, right now. We live in a world when it comes to the sexual ethic that God outlines in his word. Sex being something that is a beautiful gift and reserved for marriage, not the intention of marriage, but reserved for marriage to symbolize this unity and this oneness in between a man and a woman. We live in a day and age where it used to be that all of the church held that. But now that philosophy seems like in the world that we live in, it seems like there's only a small segment of Christians and churches that hold on to that truth. And so we live in a world where there's all types of justifications to find ourselves outside of that. We live in a world where things like marijuana are becoming legal all across the states that we live in. And and so we're not going to get into a deep dive. Let's just talk about legalities. In the Bible, God is clear about his desire for sober-mindedness, for sobriety. But what we find, even in the life of the church, even in the life of this church that we find ourselves in, is not even starting with directly attacking God's design for sobriety, but just introducing the question of, well, what does it mean to be drunk? It's not necessarily sin. We're free. And as soon as you start, if your starting point is it's not necessarily Did God really say, then I want you to know, it may not be sin, but you're on a slippery slope. Satan orchestrated the decline and the fall of the world, not with outright statements that contradicted God, but just well-placed questions that called the very clear things that he said that put those into perspective that put those things into question. And Christ's frustration with this church is this, when it comes to the outside world, you fit in too well. When it comes to the world that God has left us in to be a light, You fit in too well when it comes to the world that God left us in so that we would stand out. You fit in too well. And so what he does is he tells this church, like he would tell our church, to repent. Let me spend a little more time and talk about the danger of compromise. Here's what makes compromise. So difficult. Here's why Satan only needs a foot in the door of a church to infest it with the termites that will cause that church to crumble. Satan seduces or deceives some. So what he'll do is he'll come in. C.S. Lewis puts it the best where he says this. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Me and my wife disagree all the time about how hot or cold it should be in the house. She loves it to be Alaska 
I'm African, so I love it to be somewhere between 95 degrees in my house. 95 and 98. Hyperbole. Um, so as we start to go back and forth with the thermometer, I've learned that the way to get the thermostat to be where I want it to be is not to go at one time and make a big turn. We have a little nest at the house, so what I'll do is I'll be on my phone and just kind of turn it up one degree at a time. (laughs) And she doesn't notice until it's too late, until she's sweating all out the back of her shirt. Listen, this is what Satan does. He lowers the standards of things that you once held important, and he calls it maturity. He, He comes in and causes you to accept the things that you once rejected, and he convinces you that you're being more loving. He starts off by raising questions. But then he leads you to form conclusions when you don't have any sure foot. The Bible says Satan is a roaring lion that prowls around seeking for someone that he may devour. And what you quickly find out is that lions seldom attack the pack. They look for the person that's hanging out back. And so let me say this. If you find yourself in here or in a place where you struggle with depression and you're tempted just with the weight of everything that's on your plate, how heavy life is, it seems like such a chore and a burden to be around people and to be around the community of God. Let me just help you see that community is the best place for you to be. But hear me, being in the community is not necessarily the cure for depression. Depression is a complex thing with so many ways that we come in and so many ways that we come out. And sometimes our depression is uh, is a result of just being physically fatigued and what we need is melatonin and more sleep. Sometimes it's a complex result of a bunch of things from death to transition and all that. So hear me, what I'm not saying is that you being a part of a small group is the antidote to depression. What I am saying is that if you are depressed and you tend to pull away, when you are away and isolated, it's easier for you to be deceived. Being a part of community, while it may not be the antidote to depression, it is the antidote to deception. Keeps us grounded. It keeps us from being isolated. It gives us people that we know and love and trust to speak in and to share things and to not let us live in our own heads. Satan is crafty in the way that He deceives us, but that's not the main thing. And I don't even think that's what Jesus calls this church to repent over. Here's how compromise. Here's the tiny compromise that comes in that could cause a church to crumble. Here's how it spreads in the life of the church. Not by Satan seducing people, but by Satan convincing the rest of us to be silent. Satan doesn't have to get you to believe lies for compromise to spread in the life of the church. He just has to get you to be quiet about the truth. And there's so many things that lead us there. One is this, sometimes we're quiet because we don't want to be judgmental. It's none of my business where they are. It's none of my business what they do what they believe, what they smoke, who they live with, 
how they spend their free time. It's none of my business. Oh, we get, just feel like, well, the church is too big for me to know everybody anyway, so it doesn't make sense for me to spend all my time trying to pry into their life. Or, my life is so crazy right now, I just don't have the margin. Satan gets us to be quiet through indifference. Satan gets us to be quiet about the truth through ignorance. We feel like, ah, well, I know it's wrong, but I just don't have the credentials. I'm not studied. I don't know what to say. I don't want to give them an inadequate response. Or he gets us to be quiet about the truth by you and I just simply ignoring it. By you and I knowing that somebody that is a part of our family has compromised their standards that is not walking with the Lord in the way that they once did, that is blatantly veering off from the straight and narrow, and it's you and I maintaining friendships and not saying anything. Just acting like it's not there. Just let's talk about everything else except for the thing that could potentially send you to hell. Let's talk about everything else except for the thing that I know is a sore spot and may save your life but potentially ruin this friendship. The toughest church can be ruined by the tiniest compromise. And here's why I say that. Here's why this text lets you and I in to little compromises or a very big deal. Because it tells us how it is that Jesus himself will respond to it. Look here at verse 16. So repent of otherwise. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We live with a justice system that is broken and perverted. And so what you will increasingly see in a justice system that is perverse is punishments that don't fit the crime, right? He only had an ounce on him, but he gets 20 years. And we would look and say, that punishment is too harsh for the crime. We have to remember that God has perfect justice, which means this. We don't judge the punishment by how small the crime is, but we judge the size of the crime by the punishment that comes. Yeah, does that make sense? So we never look at God and say, God, what you did is too severe for this small thing. Man, you cast them out and you let death into the world just because they ate one fruit? No, 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 no. What we do is we say, if God's going to go to these lengths, then this must not be as small as I thought that it was. And just listen to what he says here in verse 16. So repent, otherwise, look at this. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I think we see at least four things here. One, he speaks to everybody. So he wants everybody to know, not just this one church, but he puts this instruction in a letter that's going to go out to seven churches so that all of them will be in their business. And he puts that in this Bible that would go out to every other church since then. He speaks to all because a compromise, even in a few, is a big enough deal to address in all. He says that he's going to step in himself. I will come to you. It's like, do you remember when you grew up and your mom and dad gave you something to do? Right? You're getting ready to go on a trip. And they say, you better pack your bag or we're getting ready to go out. You better clean your room. And if I come back and that bag's not packed and that room's not clean, then I'm going to do it myself and you don't want to see what that room's going to look like when I come in. Jesus comes and he has such a passion for his church that what he says is, If this is not done, if the church will not repent, I'm not just going to leave it that way. I'm going to come in and do it. And he says, I'm going to come swiftly. I'm going to come quickly. And the last thing he says, 
I'm going to come severely. This sword that you and I were glad, right? We're in danger and he has this sword and he's going to use it against his foes. What he's saying is I'm not afraid to use that very sword with my church. The implication is that Jesus is concerned with the purity of his church because a pure church that's distinct from the world shows the world that there is something that the world is missing. If the church is no different than the outside world, if our standards of holiness and forgiveness are no different than the outside world, then the world does not see Christianity and the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross as a required course. They see it as an elective. And they say, well, you can take it or leave it. I'm not going to judge you, but that's not something that I need. And if they don't see it as something that they need, then what they do is they put themselves in the very pathway of God's righteous wrath that will hit the earth one day. So a pure church is God's means of saving people that are lost. A perverted church, a church that does not maintain the standard of holiness and set itself apart from the outside world is a church that exports lies and tells the rest of the world that they are good when they're not. A perverted church is the gradual slope that will lead onlookers that look at God's church to an eternity apart from him. And God loves his world And God loves his church too much to allow the church to remain that way. And before you look at this and say, well, John, but this says here, look, if we don't do it, he says here in verse 16, right? So repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them. This is the only time where it talks to these churches that will use the word them when it talks about the church and what this is, is God saying I'm going to come in and separate those that are truly mine from those that are not mine really. So it could be us saying, well I'm going to abdicate my responsibility and let God do his thing. And I would say that is not loving. One of God's graces is that in the context of a church, a community of folks that are committed to one another, it serves as this um, assurance of salvation cooperative. So where you have a group of folks that will come in, and what we find is all of us are susceptible to lies. None of us are Jesus, so none of us live perfect lives. And so in every church, what you'll have is people that are actually Christian, And you may even at times have people that think that they're Christian because maybe they grew up in a church where they said, hey, as long as you go down in a pool of water and come back up, then you're safe. And they live their whole lives thinking that they're safe, but they're not. Then then they find themselves into a church. And the life that they live contradicts Scripture. And so what a church does is they get together and they say, hey, none of us are perfect, but all of us repent. None of us are perfect, but that's why Jesus came and died, so that you and I could know that we can experience God's forgiveness for our imperfection if we would only repent from our sins and turn from him. So we see this sin in your life. We love you enough not to be indifferent. We love you enough not to ignore it. But here, we're all going to call you to repent. And as time goes on, If they won't repent, then what a church does as an act of grace is say this. Listen, God is going to come one day with his sword. Those of us that are in the church that repent of our sins, uh, we're in that safe space where Christ stood in front of us and he took God's judgment for us. Uh, We feel that those outside of the church aren't in that safe space. 
So as an act of love, what we're going to do is we have to ask you to step back. That if you want to hold on to your sin and do what you want to do, that's fine. We're not here to hold you hostage. We just want to make sure that we aren't complicit with your deception and tell you that we as a church collectively think that you're in harm's way of that blade. Does that make sense? So it's not an act of judgment. Jesus Christ is the only one that wields the sword. We don't pronounce anybody's uh, salvation or innocence. God knows at the end of the day, but what we can do is say, hey, to the best that we all can tell, we think that you're safe or we think that you have cause for concern. And Jesus is asking this church to repent because they aren't wanting to do that. So if the toughest church, like this church, can be ruined by the tiniest compromise, what are we to do? Those that have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus and have united with a church, what are we to do? Here's the best action item, the best next step that I think that you and I can take, and and that's this. Uh, We need you Let's put this on the screen. I don't have it written in my notes. We need you to mind our business. We need you individually to mind our business. We need you to take personal responsibility for corporate faithfulness. We need you to mind our business. A little compromise can undermine a mighty church, none of us are above reproach, and we know that the hardest work that we have to do is is heart work. So what Christ does is he calls us to repent, and that's it, turn from. Here's a few of the things that we need to turn from. The first one is this. We need to turn from the individualism and self-centeredness that would allow me to remain silent when I see my brothers and sisters slowly sloping into sin. We need to repent of this individualistic mindset that what's most important is how I relate to God. If Jesus didn't want you to mind our business, he never would have used the metaphor of family to talk about the church. When somebody becomes family, their business is your business. When we adopted our daughter, her business became my business. Look, it's not like I already have plans for how I'm going to use my free time and then wherever I can fit her in, I'll fit her in. You don't do that with your family. Your family defines what you do with your time and then your free time is based on what you have left over by virtue of being a part of a church, you and I are brought into a family. Your well-being is my business. And what that means is that you and I arrange our lives around our Christianity. And so I said we arrange our lives around our Christianity because if I say we arrange our lives uh, around the church, I suspect that you would give me pushback. And immediately, in your head, you might think that when I say church, I, I mean the 501c3 organization that is Cornerstone Church West End Inc. And that's not what I mean at all. What I mean by you arranging your life around your Christianity is this. Right. Being a part of a church, a covenant community, is not an elective. It is part of Christianity. Me and a guy were at lunch this past week, and um, we were at a hamburger spot, and the conversation came up about foods that he liked and disliked, and one thing that came up was he liked hamburgers. And the more and more that we pressed in, uh, what we found out was that um, he actually didn't like hamburgers. He liked hamburger meat, So he's like, I don't like the bun, I don't like the cheese, I don't like ketchup. I really just like 
the patty. So we're on Google and we go and just find, you know, the definition of a sandwich is the composite whole. So if you don't like the whole thing, then you don't like hamburgers. Listen, I'm getting somewhere, I promise. Christianity is a composite whole. If you don't like the church, if you aren't committed to God's church, then we can call what you have something else. Let's come up with a name. But what we can't call it is Christianity. Does that make sense? It's the composite whole. You, Christianity is more than just the favorite parts of Christianity that I like. It's more than just my commitment to Jesus, me reading the Bible and enjoying quiet times. It is my commitment to Jesus that is fleshed out in my commitment to his family. And once we embrace that, then what we find out is there's no way that we can be Christians without organizing our very lives around our Christianity. And this is what he calls for here. And as we do that, here's a positive. What we do is we need you to pay attention to our morality and our theology. Pay attention to how it is that we live our lives. And two ways that you can do that is this. Listen, don't be quick to accuse, right? We're not on a witch hunt here. We're not trying to find the bad apples that will spoil the bunch, right? So don't think that you have to come in and you say, ah, so you told a lie, you're out of here, I'm going to go and get... That's not what we're trying to do. But in the same way that you and I don't want to be quick to accuse, uh, we don't want to be quick to excuse. Because we know that that potential for falling lies in all of us. Regardless of how you feel about the way that things went on, I remember when the allegations of Bill Cosby first came out, people looked and said, nah, that that can't be him. Because they had a fictionalized version of who he was. He was not Cliff Huxtable. You and I have a tendency to do the same thing. We have an idealized picture of people, and while we may not accuse, uh, we'll tend to excuse. Well, no, 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 it couldn't have been that. And, and, and so what I'm saying, here's how you collectively take responsibility for our morality, is when we see a hint of something that we're honest, and we talk, and we share the excommunication and putting folks out of the, that is a last resort. Here's the best way for you and I to guard against, to make our business ours. The best way to guard against compromise is this. Just consistently checking in on the state of the souls of your brothers and sisters. Termites will ruin your house. But one of the things that me and my wife have is what's called a termite bond. And so each year... They come out and they check and they say, all right, there's no termites here. That's great. We're going to go. What we don't do is cancel that bond just because we had one check and things turned out well. That the reason why our house has been safe is because there's been this continual check-in. It's the same in the life of the church. The reason why you and I stay safe, the way that we're guarded from compromise is by this continual check-in, is by us reminding one another that we're family. So we repent of our individualism. And lastly, we repent of our idleness when it, co- when it comes to studying God's word and knowing the truths about the things that would lead people to be easily deceived. If you have an aversion to theology or to studying God's word, let me break down what that word means. Theology comes from two Greek words that literally mean God thoughts, thoughts about God. So what that means is that you don't have a choice to be a theologian or not. Everybody's one. You have a choice to be a good one or a bad one. 
And it's idleness and an individualism that keeps us from this because we live in a day and age now with social media, Facebook and Twitter. For everybody that would say, I don't like to read, it is literally people scrolling on their phone, reading for hours, piecemealing thoughts about nothing. Take that time. Invested in this. Invested in some good books. Of which every time we gather as a church outside of Sunday, we're giving out books because we want our church to be full of people that can sniff deception and compromise from a mile away. And we don't wield the sword. We plead to those and say, hey, this is a steady slope that will lead you right to the end of God's sword. Get off this pathway. Obedience is often hard, but hear this. It's never a punishment. Obedience is God's pathway to blessing. Verse 17 here, it says this, look. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm going to break these things down one by one. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden Manna. Manna in the Bible was God's special, miraculous way of satisfying and providing for his church. Compromise in the world is constantly running and chasing after satisfaction and never finding it. And what he's saying here at the end is, listen, church, your faithfulness in this is actually the pathway towards the satisfaction that compromise promises but never provides. So as we obey, this is our way to be satisfied in God. To not be hypocrites. Hypocrisy at the end of the day is this. It's hidden happiness. It's you being happy in something but not being able to share it because you know that it's wrong. So you do it in your corner and you hide and suppress the things that cause you joy because of how it will look. Happiness is meant to be shared. It's meant to be free. And what he's saying is those that obey, Christ has special provision for us. He goes on and says this, I will give them also a white stone. There's a bunch of things that this could mean. What we, uh, what I feel like that it means or it refers to is probably one or two things. Back in this day, jurors would cast a white stone as a pronouncement of innocence. Or after a gladiator was done fighting, he would get this white stone that meant that he could retire from battle and find himself in a banquet. So it's this sense of the innocence that God provides and a resting from our work. And listen, that's just contrasted to the pronouncements of evil that a guilty conscience just gnaws at you. You know that feeling of when you compromise on standards that God has laid. Just the, you can justify it all you want with your mouth and outside, but you can't sleep at night because your conscience just gnaws at you. And he's saying to the person who runs after this, who conquers this desire to compromise, he won't only satisfy us, but he'll remind us of this innocence that's inside. And then lastly, and on this stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Scholars would say that this would be akin to finding yourself at a wedding banquet of a distinguished guest, and your name is there, and you have a place card, and inside of that place card, there's a handwritten note special from them to you. It's this intimacy. It's realizing that obedience to Christ gives us the intimacy that we long for. And so I just want you to know in all of this we talk all the time about the obligation that you and I have to one another and what that will cost us. But we have to be reminded that when it comes to obedience, it is never a punishment. Obedience carries with it the very promises from God that incentivize us to do the things that he's called us to do. And my prayer is that as we do this as a church, 
Or for those of you that may be here and you're not a part of a church or you're not a Christian, that my appeal to you would be first to put your trust in the Lord Jesus, to turn from your sin and know that there's nothing but forgiveness to be found for everybody that would lay aside their sin and turn to Christ. And then shortly after that, become a part of a church. Who's looking out for your soul? We talk a whole lot about our responsibility to somebody else, but the question that I would have to you is who's responsible for you? We're willing to be. We want to be. You don't have to do this by yourself. And for those of us that are a part of this church, This is why we do what we do here. It's not us trying to pull you away from the outside world and fighting the battles that need to be fought. We want those battles to be fought. But the way that we do that the best is to ensure that in here, we're not exporting things that will be harmful. God cares so much about the world and so much about us that he wants our purity as a church to be the thing that shines forth. My prayer is that you and I would pay special attention to this and be reminded that a commitment to Christ is a commitment to his people. We need you to mind our business. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your word. Um, We're thankful for the fact that you haven't left us alone. Uh, Father, I pray uh, for all those here today that as we're reminded of the work that Christ has done, that we would rejoice in the fact that he has a sword to guard us against our foes, and we would rejoice as well that that sword, though once reserved for us, is no longer, Father, Help us to be diligent in the way that we protect those outside the the church from that faith. And help us to be courageous in the way that we protect those that may find themselves inside the church from that very faith as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray.